0: so hey everyone welcome to the ninth episode of earthburn podcast where we indulge in conversation with separate environmental and social justice leaders from around the world i'm Komal, a volunteer at earthburn along with ec and we will be the host for today for this podcast so for this podcast episode we have a very special guest with us who is um, a public speaker a content creator a sustainability coach business coach and so on yes he is isias hernandez and, like, let's talk with the um, man himself. Firstly, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. It's truly a pleasure.
0: Yeah, um, like, since I have given, a, like, a bit, very brief introduction, so, and I know that you would have given, like, numerous in- introductions in various events, And but again, I would like to ask you, like, would you like to add more to your introduction, something that the listeners might not be aware of, or, like, any fun fact about yourself, or maybe just your story?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So my name is Isaiah Hernandez. I am an environmental educator and content creator of Cur Brown Deacon, where I discuss a variety of topics of environmental education through digital and social media. Um, my stories began right when I was born in California, Los Angeles, where I faced environmental injustices. And my curiosity to ask questions at a young age led me to pursue a degree in environmental science which eventually allowed me to experience academic forms of environmental education that very were centered on elitism and capitalistic solutions and so when I leave when I left academia I decided to really invest into non-traditional forms of education that is taught through a cultural indigenous led and a personal based lens experience to ensure that people were actually getting some types of forms of equitable environmental education because typically environmentalism is highly political when you talk about race, class, gender, and other factors that affect the environment.
2: Oh, okay, so that's a really great story I've heard. And I really appreciate that you're here with us and talking about this wonderful topic. So firstly, I would wanna ask a question. So first, since we don't really know about the um, organization and stuff. So would you like to share any fun experience that you had while being on this journey or while st- starting Queer, Brown, Vegan?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think some of the unique challenges that I faced when I first started in this space is um, constructing design and also asking myself like, how, how, how in-depth do you want to cover content? Uh, Something that I've made very clear with my audience is that my content is very focused on introductory levels. Of course, there's times where I go deeper into certain issues and this allows me to also be a more critical thinker, but this also um, challenges people to really think more critically about what they think about environmental issues. I think the other issue that I've dealt with in my recent career is the fact of like, people not taking content creation seriously. Unfortunately, in many non-social media spaces, especially when it comes to academia, scientific spaces, or writing spaces, my work is not seen as valid enough because it's not published in international publications, or it's not seen in these other articles, and something that I want to understand is how do we ensure that climate educators and climate scientists um, are able to both coexist in these spaces sustainably where we're not saying that one is better than the other, but we're able to respect each other's work in a holistic way that allows us to build more bridges together rather than walls and This is something that i've seen in many spaces um, of my work being disregarded, and it's not so much about being validated of the work i 'm doing but rather respected of you know the work that we do in this environmental movement is unique to each to their own and we need to understand that we need different roles in these spaces.
0: Yeah, uh, very true. And like uh, since you have like uh, created content on veganism as well. So like just talking about that, I personally am a vegetarian. So it kind of means that I'm not too far on my journey of being vegan but I know like how difficult it will be for me like to just cut out the daily products from my life because it does constitute a very big part of my life and um, especially for those who are like changing their lifestyle from being a non-vegetarian to completely being vegan like I know how difficult it can be for them so like what would be your advice to all such people who are undergoing this hardship but yet an important one?
1: Yes, definitely. So ideally, the way that I viewed veganism, because veganism is constantly evolving, it is more of an ethical stance and philosophy and lifestyle that understands that human and animal liberation are interconnected. And I do believe that my main goal on this mission is to really fight for a world that is no longer in the global food supply chain, meaning that both humans and animals aren't exploited. And, you know, my hope would be that, you know, in my community, it would be free from animals. Obviously, one thing I do want to address is that indigenous sovereignty and the way that they practice their traditions and cultures. In no ways do I ever want to interrogate or to question their beliefs, because a lot of Indigenous worldviews have always existed for decades. And those conversations should not be up to me of Indigenous communities being vegan or not, because that is rooted in anti-Indigeneity and settler colonial mindset. So that is not up to me to decide what they do. I do believe that those that represent those communities perhaps should have those conversations if they want to that's that's not up to me but I think for people wanting to like obtain veganism or to transition is asking yourself what is the most accessible thing for you to give up right and there goes a lot of issues with people's health people's like is access to food people's um, ability to eat certain foods this becomes a disability rights issue this becomes a, a mental health right issue there's so many things that to consider and i think um, for me i really practice and preach reductionism the reason why i'm so passionate about reductionism is because i went vegan through reductionism and i didn't focus completely on going vegan instantly i cut it off slowly months prior meaning that when i became vegetarian i challenged myself to give up eggs and eggs were you know pretty hard to do but they were more accessible because i wasn't eating eggs every day from there, I challenged myself to give up um you know, fish and meats and other things that I wasn't really eating. And so slowly and surely, I cut down my intake of meat and dairy. And I think the biggest issue I have with you know veganism and like trying to preach about it is that, We're really centered on divesting away from industrialized food systems and factory farms that are naturally destroying indigenous communities. They're destroying natural rainforests and they're destroying biocultural conservation. So we need to consider all of these factors when we talk about veganism. It's not necessarily rooted in this individualism, but more in this anti-oppression stance that is fighting for these movements.
2: Wow, that's a really great story. I really appreciate it, and it's really nice. And with ongoing to that, so talking about some individual actions and actions at large, since there is often a debate if individual actions have a major impact in reducing the ongoing climate change, do you think it has a major impact or more attention has to be given at the scientific and policy level?
1: Absolutely. So I believe that individual change equals systemic change. And there's this phrase I love to say that communities create change, not institutions. Institutions do create short-term change because the people from the community demanded the institutions to create those change. And so when we think about collective community power, we always need to recognize that the people who created this change, weren't policymakers. They weren't people that were um, living in these communities. It was people living in these communities that got fed up by the systems and governments that failed to protect them, and had to run themselves or had to go into these system uh, systemic um, changes to implement in government. So, I think at whole there, I think one of the things to be critical about systemic change is asking ourselves like you know, if we're going to be creating and redesigning laws and reforming laws that would essentially help communities for the short term, we also need to understand, like, does this system allow us to have long-term change, meaning that is there hope for liberation for these communities? And something I learned about abolition, essentially, and I'm learning a little bit more about, is that the, if reform is being implemented in policy changes, then the end goal should be abolition to abolish these existing systems. And so I think a lot of people um, believe that having these systems to flourish still in a way that's redesigned will still become the same issue years later for different generations. And so these are conversations where we need to ask ourselves like, yes, we right now live in the present and systemic change is one of the most powerful tools, But we also may not, we need to also recognize that community power and mutual aid is one of the strongest networks too in our power to create change because at the end of the day, when the climate crisis is affecting people, the government isn't essentially going to help those people. It's your community members. It's your neighbors. It's the people who love you around you that are going to have to build sustainable systems around that injustice because the government's lack of failure to provide for safety for these citizens.
0: Mm-hmm. uh i totally agree with that and uh, like since you are also a sustainability consultant and so i just wanted to know like how you will define sustainability and like have your views changed over the time like the views that you might have have like when you were a teen and now since you are an adult like have your views changed on sustainability
1: Yeah, is it possible to repeat the question or write out the question? I'm sorry, I just couldn't hear any of it.
0: Uh, okay, <laughs> like, um, since you are a sustainability consultant, like, so I just wanted to know like, how you will define sustainability, and like, have your views on sustainability changed over the time as compared to what you might have, like, when you put a team?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think being a consultant for sustainability is very different. So. At whole, the way that I've seen sustainability is a circular relationship that recognizes both human and animal liberation and focuses on regenerating the land that does not negatively impact ecosystems and creates this relationship with community land itself. However, when you're looking in the corporate lens, sustainability is often focused on these initiatives that allow them to gain, essentially, more capital and one of the biggest issues as a sustainability consultant that I've seen is that it's trying to get corporations on board with different initiatives, right? We see these companies going for net zero, they're going for, you know, plastic-free options, they're going for, you know, vegan or animal cru- uh, PETA, PETA, PETA cruelty certified. And I really, I challenge them to do more deeper work, meaning like, how do you redistribute wealth in these companies, get them outside to donate to environmental justice organizations, because essentially, if they truly are about sustainability, then they'll be focusing on really redistributing funds to people, not necessarily building out these new sustainable initiatives that are gonna take years to implement. We don't have time to see that change. What we need time is investment and time into those communities that are creating the change right now. And so these are kind of the issues that I've seen in corporate world of like the way that a lot of people have framed sustainability is to the profit land, and this is something that's hard for people to recognize of like how do you detach profitability and value and input cultural spiritual and religious freedom
2: wow that's a really great answer and i think the thought, like how you answered it was really great and I really liked it. Um, so with, with regards to that, so how do you think we, youth, can take indispensable steps to live a sustainable lifestyle?
1: Yeah, so I, I think with the youth essentially is to tapping into back your cultural roots for a lot of Black, Indigenous, Brown, people of color across the world a lot of us have sustainable practices, whether it was based off your parents trying to be more mindful or based off your survival growing up low income. And so for many of us, a lot of the practices, whether it's plastic free options, whether it's you know being able to compost naturally or whether it was able to mend or weave your clothes um, to be able to repair them, these are all regenerative practices that are accessible for a lot of people because most often not, I think that sustainable lifestyles are highly consumerist. And I also advertise sometimes sustainable products that I feel that not everyone's going to buy them. However, I do think that because a lot of people have different economic levels and we try to provide accessibility, I do think that people should, instead of buying these products, should reach out and ask for samples if that's provided or asking your friends to do some type of workshop where you discuss the things that your parents make you do i know for me my parents were very strict and made me recycle they made me to also um, repair a lot of my clothes they made me learn how to like um use a thread and needle at a very young age and these are all free skills that people should be able to learn hopefully and to teach themselves because at the end of the day It's more about the way that I see sustainable lifestyles is more about self-preservation and self-autonomy rather than, you know, showing off these products and looking at your home and saying, look how minimal and eco-friendly my house is without acknowledging that the products that we use today come from a supply chain that is either ethical or exploitative. Mm -hmm. Totally
0: or And like just uh, diving a little deeper, I saw that you have written a blog on environmental racism, if, which is available on your webpage. Okay, so firstly for all the listeners that uh, Isia has written numerous blogs, which can be found on his webpage. And we will be providing the link to his website in the description so you can check out for whole. And now like, uh, would you like to uh, walk us through what environmental racism is and what motivated you to talk about this in general?
1: Yes. So for those who just got started into environmental racism or environmental injustice, environmental racism is a concept from the environmental justice movement that's then back from the 1960s up to the 1980s and 90s. That continues on that looks into the policies and practices that disproportionately harm black indigenous people of color. And this can look through a variety of issues, whether communities that are low income are living nearby toxic factories, Or the people that are having to work in industrial agriculture, where they're exposed to a lot of toxic chemicals, or people who are imprisoned by both the prison, military or immigration industrial complex. And it looks into this um, theory that, not even theory, the realities that the environment itself isn't racist but the people who design the policies and practices are indeed racist because these these designs of these cities and ecosystems that we live in today where you see you know lower class citizens live in more um less urbanized environments meaning like they have less access to green spaces they have less access to resources and richer communities are more siloed away from the rich from the low-income communities they live more in the mountains they have more resources there's more open space for them and this was intentional by design by a lot of countries. And specifically in the United States, a famous example of this is redlining, where if you ever come to the United States, you'll see that lower income communities are segregated from richer communities. And this is because a lot of rich communities that were predominantly white and affluent in back in the 1960s and 70s um, did not want. A lot of black indigenous people of color and they did not want the toxic facilities in their home so essentially what they did is push they pushed out and prevented a lot of low-income people from even getting housing loans or the banks working with them because they didn't want a black or brown person living in their environment and so the history of redlining is rooted in a lot of racism and i think for those trying to get understand racism in their own countries is asking yourself, like, yes, the people in your country, or your policymakers look like you, but asking yourself, like, you know, who works with them, right? A lot of the times, governments have international collaborations, meaning that they're implementing policies that are racist to suppress a lot of countries. And so, therefore, there's a lot of racism that is needs to be unpacked. And also the history of imperialism, where a lot of these countries knew that they're doing this to their citizens, or they knew that they're doing this to other countries. Um, just based off the idea of like for economic, political, and environmental power.
2: All right, so I really love to hear that from you, and it's a really great answer. Well, um, moving on, so moving on to our next question is actually my personal favorite. Um, this is actually what we ask almost every speaker, and the same goes for you it's about self care. So since you have actively taken so many roles, from being an educator to being a content creator, and of course, it isn't as easy as it looks, I know how important it is to look after oneself after doing something which may be physically or mentally exhausting. So what do you like to do in your
1: free time? Yeah, I absolutely love this question so much. I think my free time, I really love to do activities that often not are interconnected to the work I do. I recently started to forage a lot, uh, specifically looking into identifying and searching for mushrooms. So a little mycologist over here, but specifically the way that I've learned foraging is also one that's rooted in sovereignty, especially coming from indigenous wisdom, because as someone who's not indigenous and that was also displaced from their native country, I realized that a lot of the practices with foraging have been erased or attempted to be erased because a lot of the plants and knowledge that my parents have is not seen as valid in this western science world and so for me reconnecting with foraging has allowed me to reconnect with my roots in a sense and also to be able to be a better steward not for just the land but for communities that exist and I think a lot of people often take the time to be solely on online spaces and I think it's a good thing but also to take the time to meet those offline relationships or build relationships with your family because it's essential in this climate crisis and social media isn't the end all be all solution, but it is a very critical solution for a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm. It's like great uh, to see that you would do like um, spend time uh, doing some self care stuff or like just being me in just free time and rather than just keeping work aside and uh like we're almost done and so like would you like to add on anything for our listeners who are just listening to this podcast
1: yeah i would think i would love to say that we cannot liberate ourselves from the ecological crisis without our community and we must recognize that the existence has always the the resistance and movements have always existed to create a regenerative just world and remembering that no matter how much hope or hopeless or hopefulness or hope or helplessness that you feel uh, to never forget about who you are. So thank you so much.
2: Oh, really? Thank you so much for um, joining the podcast for today. So it was really so fun talking to you. I am also sure that our listeners will enjoy listening to this podcast. And thank you so much for joining us today. And be sure to check out I, um, yeah, ICS, ICS's website and the Instagram page linked in the description and give him all the love and support for the incredible work he is doing. If you love listening to our podcast, don't forget to share and follow. Also, we'd love to know your opinions in our podcast. And you can give us your reviews on our socials, which are linked in the description. I'm Isu along with Kamal, and this is the EarthBurned Podcast.